All right, it's good to see everybody. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at the Summit, and uh, glad you could be with us. Happy Mother's Day. Um, Before we jump into what we're going to be talking about tonight, I want to make a brief uh, announcement. Um, Some of you may have heard this, but I was actually on TV last week, and um, I feel like that overpromises and underdelivers because it wasn't like CNN or me making my actorial debut on Days of Our Lives or something uh, incredibly influential. I was on the PBS local uh, station, and uh, I was asked to talk about race and racism in Denver and in the United States. And uh, originally I was brought on, I guess, uh, one, uh, to be honest, just because I'm a young white guy. Uh, If you can't tell, I am white. Um, if you can tell from my pasty white skin, um, I'm very, very white. I don't tan, I burn. That's, that's how um, white I am. Uh, but also, um, they, they had heard about the summit. They'd heard about the work that our church is doing in the city. We're gaining influence. We're growing in our size in really every conceivable way. And so I was supposed to come in kind of as this young, up-and-coming pastor of a young, up-and-coming church to speak about the issue that's so prominent uh, in our city. And then uh, they learned a little bit of information about uh, my family uh, that became kind of the central talking point of the entire piece. Um, And so that's what I'm going to tell you about right now. Um, So some of you know this. Some of you uh, found out as you were watching me on TV. And uh, some of you will find out right now. Uh, My wife and I are in the process of adopting a baby from Taiwan. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you. We're, we're really excited. I know probably some of you saw that on PBS and you were like, wait, what? Does he know that? Uh, yes, I did. I did know that. We're months into the process, but we've been trying to wait to tell people until we've got things solidified. And uh, international adoptions are very, very, uh, they're just unpredictable. And so um, I wanted to tell you, one, because as the summit, you are our family. And uh, we wanted to just to tell you guys, as well as just to, just to tell you why. They didn't give me the opportunity to share this on TV. Um, but, but if they had asked me, well, why are you doing this? Because I know it's probably a little bit bizarre, but some of you probably don't know anybody who's ever done anything like this. Um, we believe that one of the most unique aspects of the Christian faith, we believe Christianity is unlike any other religion, is that God is not just a rule giver. Uh, he's not just a God who forgives when we do things wrong. Uh, he is also an adoptive father. Uh, the doctrine of adoption Uh, is what makes Christianity so unique. Um, Some of you have been adopted. You you were biologically not raised by your parents, um, by somebody else. But if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, you have been adopted. You've been adopted by God the Father through the work of the Son and through the power of his Holy Spirit. And that truth has been so captivating for Christians, really all the all the way back to the book of Acts, if you study history, is that uh, Christians in the church have been characterized as men and women uh, who took in kids who everybody else viewed as being unwanted and as orphans, and they took them and they raised them as their own sons and daughters. And so um, that's the why. That's the why uh, behind Megan and I doing this. Um, we want to put the gospel on display through raising a child that the world would say is not our own in every conceivable way, but he or she uh, will be. So we want you to know that. Please, play, uh, please pray for us. It's extremely unpredictable. We're dependent on the uh, bureaucracy of the United States and the bureaucracy of Taiwan cooperating with one another. Um, and so there's a lot that's not in our control, but everything is under God's control. And so that's why we're asking you to pray, and I just want to let you guys know that as well. So, okay, that part is over. Now we're going to talk about what we're talking about 
Uh, tonight, we are continuing in our movement series, and uh, we are talking about the movement's power. Last week, we saw the mission of Jesus being defined, of telling everybody. And tonight, we are talking about the movement's power, specifically the power that comes through God, the Holy Spirit. We are going to introduce some of you for the very first time to the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. Now, it is Mother's Day. Um, my parents are in town. My mom is in town. Mom, hi, mom. Um, that's good. Glad that she's here. Um, all week, I'm getting ready to teach you on this concept, and I keep kept coming back uh, to this experience that I had with my family a few years ago, um, where my my wife and I went on vacation with my parents, and we went on a hot air balloon ride. Now, um, I hesitate to share this story. Because I don't want to make it seem like this is just like the normal course of my life. Like, oh yeah, you know, like that one time I was going on a hot air balloon ride. I've done this once. Okay, once in my entire life. This is not the ebb and flow of my daily happenings. And um, the, the reason I kept coming back to that experience is because uh, in verse 2, the Holy Spirit, he is described as being like a rushing wind. And all week I kept coming back to this experience because it wasn't until I went on that hot air balloon ride that I had ever experienced being so dependent upon wind my entire life. Um, Now, I had always thought prior to this experience that a hot air balloon, you get in the basket, they fill up the balloon, you go up in the air, and you just drive that thing around like a helicopter, right? You just go whatever direction you want to go into. It, uh, it does not work that way. Uh, in fact, we, we got in the basket, we went up in the air, and then the pilot, and I'm I'm using air quotes on purpose. I'll tell you about that in a second. The pilot goes on to say, I'm not kidding you, these are his words, I sure hope the wind is favorable to us today so that we land somewhere good. Now, when somebody says something like that, you're like, huh, tell me more about that. So um, I go to the pilot and I say, okay, could, could you elaborate on the land somewhere good aspect of what you just said. He said, yeah, well, you know, the interesting thing about a hot air balloon is that you have no control over what direction it goes into. Uh, It just blows you wherever the wind wants to blow you. And that's the way he said it. Like it was this peaceful, uh, just this, oh, you're just like the sailors of old, the wind blowing you wherever. Isn't that such a peaceful image? No, it is not a peaceful image because I'm in a basket a thousand feet in the air looking down on the ground, seeing these houses saying, am I going to land on a chimney or a cornfield? Which one is it going to be? And even if we do land on a cornfield, will it be the right cornfield? Will the guy who owns that cornfield not get into a Chevy pickup and drive out with a shotgun and say, get off my land? How exactly is this going to go? Isn't that a little bit anxiety inducing? I know for Probably most of you, you've never been on a hot air balloon ride. But can you just imagine what it's like to be floating a thousand feet above the air, looking down, wondering, am I going to land somewhere good or somewhere bad? And at the heart of all of this is knowing that the power, the force that's controlling you is something as uncontrollable and as impersonable as the wind. Can you imagine that? Now, I start with that because I think for many of us, this is what we experience in our lives. For many of us, there we are floating a thousand feet high. And I think when we're originally born and we grow up, we start with this illusion that I can control really every aspect of my life. We talked about this technology feeds into this. I mean, you have the control not to have to watch commercials when you watch TV. You have the control to, to specify exactly what degree Fahrenheit you want the temperature to be in your car or in your house. And so you think, you know, I can control every area of my life. I can go whatever direction I want to go into. But all it takes is a little bit of life experience to know that's not true whatsoever. I mean, all it takes 
Is somebody getting sick that you didn't want to have get sick? All it takes is somebody breaking up with you that you didn't want to have break up with you. All it takes is losing a job or not getting the promotion that you had done everything to earn. And very quickly, what you realize is the most important aspects of your life are outside of your control. There we are floating a thousand feet above the air, hoping that a force as impersonal, as uncontrollable as the wind, blows us to somewhere good versus somewhere bad, somewhere peaceful rather than somewhere chaotic. I mean, that's the way that many of you understand your life. Some of you are not Christians, and as you try to make sense of your next steps and the direction that you'll go into, you talk about how, you know, hopefully your circumstances will work out. Hopefully uh, the universe will deal you a favorable hand. Hopefully a higher power will be favorable towards you. Hopefully the random chances of a cold, dark universe where no higher power is even there will be gracious to you. And, and that's as anxiety-inducing as being a 1,000 feet above the air, putting your hopes in the wind and blowing you somewhere favorable. Start with all that tonight to ask us a simple question. Here it is. It's the heart of what we're going to talk about. What if in your life and in mine... The direction of your life was not determined by something as uncontrollable and impersonal as the wind. What if in your life and mine there is a power who is described as being like a rushing wind and he is so powerful, he contains the very attributes of God himself. He is so personal and near that you can know with absolute unwavering confidence that he is laboring whether you recognize it or not for your joy and for your good and to move you towards peace instead of chaos wouldn't that be good news if that were actually true and my goal tonight is to convince you that it's actually true it is true because not only is there God the Father and God the Son, but there is God the Holy Spirit. And he is not only meant to reign over your life, but to rule within your heart and to captivate you and to pull you towards the life that you desire to labor towards that direction. And so that's what we're going to learn about. We are going to meet God the Holy Spirit, and we are going to learn three qualities about God the Holy Spirit in particular, okay? Three qualities about God the Holy Spirit. The first that we'll be learning about the Spirit is that he is crucial okay the spirit is crucial notice i'm saying he this is just a little theological footnote here notice i'm saying he a lot of times when we talk about the spirit we say it we believe he is god we're going to talk about that we're going to get a little technical here we go we, we believe that he is not an it he is a he he is the third person of the trinity so stay with me here we're gonna get technical we believe that god is one as well as three we believe he is unified as well as diverse we believe he is one in his essence there is only one god there is only one entity in the entire universe who possesses uh, the the qualities of godness and yet he is diverse in his personhood one in essence three in personhood father son and holy spirit you with me so far God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We talk a lot about God as Father. We talk a lot about Jesus, God as Son. But we very rarely talk about God the Holy Spirit uh, because he's a little bit difficult to wrap our minds around. He's a little bit difficult to explain. Uh, and so we typically marginalize, ignore, uh, basically just outright don't talk about him very much whatsoever. But he's God. And so the, the very nature of being God requires us uh, to study who he is. He is crucial for your life and to understand. In fact, 
If you notice last week, we skipped over this on purpose. But at the very beginning of our series, we saw that Jesus in Acts chapter 1, before he even gives the mission of saying that the mission is to tell everybody, to tell everybody. Here's what he says to the disciples, Acts chapter 1, verse 4. He says, and while staying with them, he, this is Jesus, told them not to depart from Jerusalem. Don't even leave. Don't even leave. Why? But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What Jesus is saying is the Holy Spirit, he is crucial. So crucial that even the disciples, the men who lived with Jesus, were taught by Jesus, would be fools and failures if they left that city without, being, uh, d- without meeting him firsthand. We tend to ignore him, marginalize him, not talk a whole lot about him, but Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit, he is God and he is crucial for your life and for mine. All week, this made me think of Mother's Day. There's a law that you learn in seminary that if it's Mother's Day, uh, particularly if your mom is in town, you have to tell a self-deprecating story about yourself uh, from the stage, and so here we go. Um, growing up, I had a little bit of friction with my parents, and every once in a while, that friction mounted to the point that I would run away. Um, I'm not sure if you ever did this. It's not because your parents are bad. I had wonderful parents. Uh, this wouldn't be a Mother's Day story if I was like, yeah, and it's all her fault. No, it's, it's all my fault. It's all my fault. You know, something like, uh, you know, no more Mario Brothers, and all of a sudden, there's just a meltdown going down in the house, right? Some of you did this. I did this. You're freaking out. And uh, you're, you're freaking out so much that you go up to your room. I did this. I go up to my room. I pack up all my belongings, you know, like a T-shirt and a pair of Umbro shorts, put them in a backpack. I go outside. I'd walk up the driveway, and I would run away. I would. Uh, and I would return after about 30 minutes. Um, because every single time I went out on my own, I recognized how crucial my parents really were. They're fundamental to my very existence, to my very being. Even though I hadn't recognized them, appreciated them, the reality was behind the scenes their entire lives, they had been working to provide and protect and to take care of me, whether I appreciated it or not. Many of your parents, you experience the exact same thing. Your kids can't even talk yet. And there they are wailing away, refusing, not even using words to take in the food that you worked tireless hours to put on the table for them. And yet, what do you do? Do you say, well, fine, if you're not appreciative, all right, no more food for you, little toddler. No. What do you do? Because you're a good parent. You, you perpetually continue to labor for their good and for their care in spite of the fact that they don't really understand, appreciate, or recognize how crucial you are. That's what my parents did for me. That's what you do for your kids. The Holy Spirit, he is the exact same way in a far more profound way. He does not get his feelings hurt that we often marginalize him, misunderstand him. Some of you probably don't even know that he exists. And you know what's incredible? Like a loving parent, he pursues you relentlessly and labors for your good. He loves you to bring about the desired outcome that God desires for your life. Like a loving parent, he pursues you, whether you recognize it or not. He takes care of you, whether you recognize it or not. Even when you fail to understand just how crucial he is. Now, some of you don't recognize this, but let me just tell you, from 
Let me just give you a few ways that he practically does this in your life. First, he reveals truth to you. He reveals truth to you. The reason we can speak at all about who God is and what he's done and know the work that he wants to do in your life is because of the Holy Spirit. The reason that you have this Bible that that we can teach and explain who Jesus is and the work he's done in your life is because of the Holy Spirit. Peter, the apostle, he he writes this himself. He says in verse uh, 21 of the second letter that he wrote, 2 Peter 1, 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by by the Holy Spirit. The reason you know the truth about who God is is because he's revealed that truth to you. Some of you, you're in this room and you're maybe thinking about becoming Christians. Some of you are in this room and you just became Christians and you didn't just wake up. I mean, you could even tell the story. You didn't just wake up one day and all of a sudden decide to be spiritual. Uh, That didn't just happen. The Holy Spirit, he was pursuing you relentlessly, drawing you relentlessly, laboring for your good. Many of you can tell that story again and again and again. Not only does he reveal truth to you, he also prays for you. This is the most mind-blowing aspect of what the Holy Spirit does. The Apostle Paul, he says, in the midst of our darkest, hardest times, the Holy Spirit prays for us. He writes this in Romans chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I mean, some of you have felt that. You've been so depressed, so anxiety-filled, so sad. You've been grieving a loss so significant. You have not even known how to communicate your pain. And yet here's the good news is the Holy Spirit, he was praying for you in that moment. Asking God to bring about the good in your life, you don't even know how to articulate yet. Laboring for your good. Not only this, He empowers you. We saw last week in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So He goes and says, You should tell everybody, but here's the deal is that it's not until you've received power. It's not until you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit himself that you should even think of trying to make that level of impact in the life of another. And many of you have experienced this firsthand over the past year. Many of you have baptized friends. You've baptized family members. You've baptized neighbors, coworkers. And if we asked you to tell that story up here, you would say, it, it was not me. It was not like I was articulate enough to convince the most skeptical person to get up on stage and get totally soaked in front of a room full of people they didn't know. No, the Holy Spirit, he was working in and through you, empowering you to do in your life what you do not have the capacity to do in your own strength. So that is just a glimpse and to what the Holy Spirit, he does and has been doing in your life. It's just a fraction of the glimpse of what he's been doing in your life. He labors ceaselessly for your good. God, the Holy Spirit, desiring to move and push you to the destination you crave and God desires for your life. He's crucial. He's so important to understand and believe and treasure. Now, not only... Is he crucial, but he's also personal, okay? So, so we've seen this quality that he's crucial. Now we will see that he is personal. We've laid the groundwork of um, 
who he is. And I want you to look at the text that we're going to be studying tonight now, Acts chapter 2. I'm going to look at the first four verses. The first four verses say this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, and Pentecost was just this major uh, Jewish festival that would have gathered together Jews from all the different nations. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we talked about the first two verses. We're going to talk about speaking in tongues, that verse 4 in the next uh, point. But I want to focus on verse 3. Okay, look at verse 3 again. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, I don't know if you know this. I know many of you are new to church. You're new Christians. You're exploring spirituality. Uh, But this is one of the most well-known passages in the entire Bible. I'd study this a, a, a a good number of times, had read through this a good number of times, and uh, still this week, I came to verse 3, where fire appears to the people and then falls on the people, and I was just like, if I'm just honest, I have no idea what this means. I don't know if you ever get to parts like that in the Bible, but I was just like, I have no idea. I have to get some help. And so, um, studying, reading, and I came across uh, this author who pointed out, a pretty interesting point, I thought, that over and over again, in the Old Testament, God appears as fire. So so in the Old Testament, for example, in the book of Genesis, uh, God appears to Abraham as a burning torch. And uh, in Exodus, God appears to Moses as a burning bush. And then later in Exodus, God appears to his people at Mount Sinai as an all-consuming flame and this pillar of smoke. It's it's pretty intense. And uh, again and again and again, what's communicated throughout the Old Testament is that God is this God who is much like fire. He is beautiful and meant to be beheld. But at the same time, if you approach him incorrectly or wrongly, it's not going to go well for you. Okay, He's an all consuming fire who deserves to be respected. Now, grasp that truth as you think about this scene where fire not only appears to the people, but begins to dwell inside the people. Not only appears, but begins to dwell inside. What's transpiring in this scene is this incredible progression in the relationship between God and his people, where God, in this moment, is no longer this deity simply to be feared and obeyed at all costs, but instead he is meant to be enjoyed and experienced personally within the people's hearts. As this author said, Every believer is now a burning bush, experiencing tangibly, experiencing personally God, not just as Father who reigns over them, but God as Spirit who dwells inside them, tangibly, personally experiencing a relationship with God. Now, Theologically, uh, this is a very complex subject. How, How does a relationship between God and his people change and if you study kind of church history, um, which I'm not sure if any of you do in your free time, I'm not exactly sure why you would do that uh, in your free time, but maybe you're a nerd like I am. And what you see time and time again throughout church history is that people were trying to wrap their minds around, like, what exactly happened in this scene? Like, what exactly transpired? What exactly went down? What exactly changed? And Thomas Goodwin, he was this Puritan author about 400 years ago, was living in London, and he said, I finally went out today, and I experienced what it meant. He lived in London, and he was walking around the city, and uh, 
he saw this dad and a son walking hand in hand down the street. Many of you do this with your kids throughout the city of Denver. You're walking down the sidewalk hand in hand with your kid. And uh, he said he was watching this father and son walk together hand in hand down the streets of London. And uh, all of a sudden, in a moment, uh, the father reached down to the son and uh, he threw him up in the air like some of you will do with your boys. And he caught him and uh, he you know, started giggling and his father was kissing him and hugging him and loving him and just... It happened for about five or six seconds, and then all of a sudden, he uh, put the kid back down, and they kept on walking. And what Goodwin said was that was a glimpse into what transpired and the progression of the relationship between God and his people in Acts chapter 2. Because here's the question. Has anything changed legally in that scene between the relationship between the father and the son? No, absolutely not. Nothing changed legally. That son was just as much a son in that moment as he was before he was tossed up in the air. But experientially and personally, Everything changed. Everything changed because that son tangibly and personally experienced the love of his father in a brand new way. Goodwin said, so it is with the Holy Spirit when he falls on his people. God becoming more than just a deity to be obeyed, but a spirit who lives in our hearts and guides us on a daily basis. Now, what does that tangibly look like? For, for many of us, when we think of the Holy Spirit and his interaction in our lives, we, we tend to think, well, you know, I don't do anything crazy and I don't speak in tongues and I don't prophesy and I don't tell the future and I don't perform miracles and I don't cast out demons. Does that mean then that the Holy Spirit, he's not living in our lives? I would say that is not the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that he's not trying to come and fall on you and do something new, but instead illuminate within your heart the timeless truths of the gospel that became your reality the day you first believed in Jesus Christ. Too many people think that the Holy Spirit, his work is exclusively a work of the spectacular, even though it is, the the miraculous, even though it is, something completely new, sometimes it is, when his primary purpose in the work of his people is to illuminate the timeless truths of the gospel. And here's the deal, is that some of you, you're like, has the Holy Spirit, is he fallen on me? Has he not fallen on me? I would say, one, he fell on you the day you first believed. And you've experienced this, and sometimes you just don't even realize he's doing this in your life. Let me just be really practical. For some of you, for all of you, if we're honest, we have moments where we are tremendously anxious, or we feel tremendously disappointed, or we feel tremendously alone. And for some of you, you're new Christians, or you're growing in your faith. And I'm speaking now specifically to people who are, who are followers of Jesus. For, for, for some of you, in your past, when you dealt with anxiety and an unknown future, you would have freaked out. You would have turned to self-destructive habits. You would have made some really bad decisions. But now, all of a sudden, you've got this brand new hope in God where even though you have this unknown future and the situation is unresolved, you know that even though it's unknown, God knows everything, and you can trust and believe and obey him. For some of you, you're disappointed. You're disappointed because you've relapsed into a behavior that you wish you weren't living out anymore. And in your past, that you would have just let that cycle into despair and frustration and depression. But now there's all of a sudden this hope, okay, I messed up, I, I dropped the ball, but here's the deal, I still believe that victory is possible. For some of you, 
you, you feel tremendous loneliness, and in your past, it would have led you to relationships you shouldn't be a part of, decisions you shouldn't be a part of, going on dating sites that you shouldn't be a part of. And now, all of a sudden, you've got this hope that says, okay, even though I don't have a boyfriend, even though I don't have a spouse, even though I don't have children, and people are coming up to me all the time and saying that tremendously hurtful statement of, well, when are you going to have kids? And it feels like a knife is cutting through my heart. Uh, all of a sudden, in the midst of the pain and the sadness and the loneliness, I don't feel alone because there's a God who loves me and knows me and is drawn near to me. Don't you see what's happening in those moments where you are grasping for that hope? You're not all of a sudden remembering a bunch of theological truths. The Holy Spirit himself is personally dwelling within your heart and illuminating the timeless truths of the gospel that there's a God who loves you and died for you and rose for you so that you might be victorious. And his death is your death and his victory is your victory. personally bringing about the reality that our God that you love and obey and accepted and believed is not just some cold, callous deity who just starts the universe and lets it run its course. Not some cold, callous deity who just gives you a list of rules. And if you can keep them, you'll be blessed. And if you can't keep them, which is all of us, then you'll be cursed. But said a God who steps out of heaven and into history ultimately to dwell within our hearts. He is not only crucial, he is not only personal, but finally he is purposeful, okay? He is purposeful. God the Spirit is purposeful in his work. And I use that language of purposeful on purpose, pun intended, because a lot of times when we think about the work of the Holy Spirit, he is exclusively associated with the most bizarre aspects of Christianity. So uh, maybe you've had the misfortune of turning your TV to the wrong channel late at night and turning on Christian television where you've seen a dude in a suit more expensive than my house, you know, jumping around, speaking in gibberish, casting out demons, and saying it's all the work of the Holy Spirit. And that has not made you want to believe. That has not enlarged your faith. It has made you want to change the channel and say, Our Seinfeld reruns on. Am I right? Okay. And so here's the deal. Is the Holy Spirit, his work in our lives is always purposeful. It is always, always purposeful in what he is trying to accomplish. And we see this in the last half of this passage. This is incredible. This is just mind-blowing to me. Look at verse 5. So the Holy Spirit, he has fallen. His people are now speaking in tongues. Look at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished and saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now, as we're saying, the people were speaking in tongues. And this is tremendously controversial, and it's really complicated. This is not my exhaustive theological explanation of tongues. If that's what you're looking for, you're going to be sorely disappointed. But I just want you to see what he's doing in the lives of these people. The Spirit, he falls on the Christians. They begin speaking in tongues. The nations have gathered to this city. They speak in one language. The people all hear the language in their own language. And all of a sudden, the message and the good news of the gospel has broken into the nations in Acts chapter 2, even though Jesus just promised you would do this in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. 
You see this? Understand it's a little bit technical and theological. But Jesus is already doing what he promised by the power of the Holy Spirit through the miraculous. These Christians speaking a singular language, the nations hearing the gospel contextualized into their own language, and all of a sudden, the nations start believing. You see the purpose of what he's doing? But here's the deal. He takes it up a whole other notch, okay? We're going to get even more theological, so stay with me, okay? This is tremendously important. If you were with us a year ago, you know we studied the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, chapter 11, there's a story about the Tower of Babel. And what happens, if if you're not familiar with that story, uh, all the people in the world at that time spoke a single language. And uh, they gathered together, and they decided to build this tower. And they believed if they built this tower, it would go so high, it would stretch into into the heavens, and it would make them greater than God and not need God whatsoever. It probably got to about two stories. But, um, you know, that's just human nature. We are tremendously proud people. And uh, God, out of his grace and his mercy, he steps down and he confuses. He messes up the entire ridiculous building project. Well, how does he scatter the people? He gives them a variety of different languages. And it, and it humbles them and it helps them recognize their need for God, right? And if you've ever taken a foreign language, you know this is the case. Like, I took four years of Spanish, and all I can say is what my name is, and I can ask where the bathroom is. Like, that's, that's it. After four years of trying to learn this language, so he steps in, and he scatters them, and they all of a sudden are speaking these different languages. Here's the key right here. That Babel, at Babel, the people sinned, and God scattered his people. At Pentecost, Jesus saves, and God gathers his people together through a single language. A Babel, scattering through languages at Pentecost, a gathering through a single language, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the gospel. You may think that may not, you know, maybe an interesting biblical observation. You may think, huh, like that's kind of an interesting coincidence. Don't you see a far larger, more relevant truth is being taught that, that God, the Holy Spirit, he is doing a work of redemption and reconciliation and restoration on a cosmic scale. And here's the question you should be asking, I should be asking, is if he can do that sort of work of restoration in a cosmic capacity, what can he do in your life as well? And when you think about the issues that you're facing, I mean, what would it look like for God the Holy Spirit to fully unleash his power in your life? And here's the deal is that some of you, you're not Christians and you've been on the brink of Christianity. You're trying to figure out what exactly do I do and how does this play out and how is my life going to change? And I'll tell you, one of my favorite conversations I get to have with some of you is you talking about how you're not really sure if you can overcome your past and you think about the things you've done and the mistakes you've made and the people that you wronged and the hurtful decisions that still exist with you today and you're wondering if you will ever be able to overcome those things. You wonder if you need to overcome those things before becoming a Christian, but you don't have to. If you're wondering that, you don't have to. You just come to Jesus as you are, but you're even wondering after that, will I be victorious over those things? And the good news of the gospel is the same power that rose Jesus from the grave when you become a Christian begins dwelling within your heart and your life as well and his business is redeeming and restoring you into the man or woman God created you to be. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that can be done to you. There's nothing that happened to you that has to forever define who you are because of God's powerful Holy Spirit. For some of you, you have become Christians recently and you're trying to make sense of it 
Am I right? For some of you, you're trying to figure out why am I thinking differently and feeling differently and making different decisions, and all of a sudden, I was able to do this and this and this and hang out with these people and go to this place, and all of a sudden, you do those things. It's not that you completely stop, but you go and do those things, and you feel this tremendous weight upon your chest. I shouldn't have done that. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't desire to live that way anymore. And you're trying to make sense of it because nobody even told you to stop it. Why is that happening? Because God, the Holy Spirit, he is coming to live inside you and he is redeeming and restoring you into the man or woman that you're supposed to be. For some of you, you've been Christians for some period of time and you feel guilty perpetually. You feel like, why am I not more advanced in my obedience? Why am I not more advanced in my generosity? Why am I not more advanced just in my daily walk? Why am I not more advanced in my evangelism? I just encourage you to look back over the past year or two or five years since you've been a believer to examine your life, to look who you were and to look at who you are at now and to see the disparity and see the tremendous work the Holy Spirit he's doing in your life, a work so substantial that for some of you, your friends and your employers describe you as being something like a brand new person and to have the faith and confidence to know that God, the Holy Spirit, he will finish in you what he started. He changes everything. And for some of you, you've experienced this firsthand. And I challenge you to say that if he can do that type of work on a cosmic scale with languages, if he can do that type of work in a life of somebody as messed up as you and as messed up as me, what he, can he do in the life of that friend, that neighbor, that coworker that you just believe is too far gone, too bad to ever believe and follow Jesus? Here's the deal. The Holy Spirit, he is crucial. He is personal. He is purposeful. We're going to land the plane here, but I just want to challenge, I want to speak two minutes to those of you who are trying to figure out what to do with this, those of you who are on the brink of becoming Christians, those of you who are trying to figure out what is my next step. I just want to challenge you to the very end of this story to understand how you are supposed to respond, okay? So two minutes, and then we'll land the plane. Look at verses 12 and 13, the very last two verses. I just want you to see the way the people responded. This is how you can potentially respond as well. Verse 13 Some looked at this. Others mocking said they are filled with new wine. What what these people believed was that everybody here was drunk. Um, That's just the way they explained this phenomenon of what was happening before their eyes. These people are drunk. In fact, Peter, in the passage we'll look at next week, says they're not drunk. It's 9 in the morning. They can't be drunk this early. So it's not, you know, just... and, and, And you know what? For some of us, what this reveals is that for some of us, our hearts are so callous, we have already made up our mind, no matter the evidence, that it really doesn't matter what God does in your life and before your eyes and the the endless stream of coincidences that have brought you to this moment right now, that you'll just always be able to find a reason to explain it away. That's the way you explain away thousands of people hearing the gospel in their own language. They're drunk. Don't be that hard-hearted, callous person. But verse 12 This is the way you should respond. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? That's the question some of you should be asking. What does this mean? What does it mean? Very simple. That God is not some cold, callous deity who rules from far away or just started the universe and left it. He is actively involved in his creation. All of us, even though God made us, gave us the very breath that filled up our lungs, have rejected God, We are sinners both by our nature and by our choice. And God, even though we turn our back on him, has not turned his back on us, and he pursues us. He steps out of history. 
where he steps out of heaven into history. He lives the life we should have lived so that you can be righteous. He dies the death you should have died so that you might be forgiven. He resurrects from the grave so that you might be victorious. He ascends to be with the Father so the work is finished. He sends the Holy Spirit so that you might experience and enjoy and tangibly, personally feel the presence of God and the ebb and flow of your daily life. The Holy Spirit elsewhere in the Bible is described as being a gift. And the very nature of receiving a gift is for you to humbly ask. So we're going to pray And I'm going to pray for some of you, just ask. Ask for God to open your heart, to soften your callousness, to lessen your skepticism, and to finally make the ask. God, come and reign and rule over me by the power of your Holy Spirit. We'll pray, we'll worship through song, and then we'll be done. God, we thank you so much that you get involved in our lives. And we thank you so much that even though uh, we as Christians, and really even we as a church, tend to not emphasize your Holy Spirit in the way he should be emphasized. (sighs) That you relentlessly and lovingly pursue us as a good parent relentlessly pursues the good of their children in spite of their obedience or not. God, let us be hungry for your Spirit to illuminate our hearts with the, with the full truths of the gospel. Let him compel our daily lives. Let him move in the lives of those in this room who are even on the brink and on the fence. Let him receive the due recognition and honor he deserves. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.